everybody. Welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron and Kevin here with you as always. Number 186, Kevin. I'm counting them every week now because for a long time I just didn't keep count, but it's important. I like it. Big number. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to count them because it seems more impressive when you have more. I mean, the average podcast, now that everybody's got one, right? The average podcast lasts 12 episodes. And so we're showing that we've got great stick to itiveness. Yeah, yeah. stick to itiveness. That sounds like an ironic hipster word that someone made up just 20 minutes ago. And then for some reason, it's in the dictionary. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, it's kind of evidence, though, that we can continue to deliver a quality product. That's <laughs> and, right. Uh, it, it, you know, that, and it raises a lot of trust with the public when you say that we've done 186 here and I've done 361 over on uh, talking biotech, it, you know, that's an awful lot of media to create. So, uh, you know, c- good times. So let's dive in. Yeah, baby. Let's do these stories. Okay. So three great ones as always. First up, our microbiomes respond positively to exercise, possibly giving us a digestive boost. Next, chair of the Lancet's COVID commission, Jeffrey Sachs, believes U.S. blocking real investigation of virus origins. And finally, the natural food sham. Effective communication on the ethics of science may be hindered by appeals to naturalness. All right, Kevin, let's dive into this first one. What are we talking about? Yeah, so this is about microbiomes. Uh, It's by Roberta Angheledganu in BBC, uh, September 7th. And microbiomes have kind of a funny place when we discuss them with uh, other people, because, you know, a lot of people are very skeptical, you know, how can the populations that line our digestive tract really matter? And other than just the being there and doing what they do, you know, and helping us to break down food and change it and convert it to produce vitamins, whatever. And what it turns out is that what we're learning is that this is much more complex problem than we previous thought, previously thought, that the brain-gut axis, this, this set of nerves that, uh, and sensors that line the lumens of the digestive tract, feedback into the brain and control specific processes and things associated with digestion like mobility of, of a stool moving through or a uh, absorption of different stuff. I mean, there's a lot of interesting roles and we're learning more and more about this all the time. And one of the things uh, that affects the microbial community, well, I shouldn't just say one, many things affect that microbial community. What's your diet? Uh, how much are you taking antibiotics? how, you know, you, you name it, all the different factors that affect us affect those bacteria. And one of the things they found to increase microbial gut diversity is exercise. And even a small amount, so they say, you know, 18 to 32 minutes a few times a week could give you a more diverse microbiome in the intestines than uh, that of sedentary people. And that there's a few specific ones 
which I won't bore you with the Latin names because I can barely read them. Um, you know, never eat bacteria when you can't pronounce the name. <laughs> um, they, uh, what they do is they produce a compound called butyrate. And butyrate is uh, a type of short-chain fatty acid that uh, was related to different short-chain fatty acids that uh, seem to be at the core of this, that, uh, that there are different fatty acids that signal between bacteria and maybe between bacteria and that gut-brain axis. And that that could be providing some sort of a physiological advantage, uh, especially in the way you metabolize different stuff. So even at the basis of things like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, all these may have a role in uh, somewhere in the diversity of that microbiome. So that's where it starts. You know, for the longest time, I thought this was all made up, if I'm being totally honest. And I just never looked into it because there's so many different aspects of science that you can investigate. And this was just one I sort of wasn't that interested in. And then I interviewed Dr. Paul Offit on this show uh, in, in the spring of 2020, just as COVID was getting down. But he had a new book out at the time called Overkill, which is really good. And every chapter documents an area of medicine where mainstream science uh, has gotten it wrong and then refused to change course just because of inertia or whatever. He offers explanations. But this was one of them. And I remember reading that and then talking to him and going, you know what? Maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong here because he did what a good scientist should do. And he actually just went and looked at the research. And when I look at this story, Kevin, I see the kinds of studies that improve our understanding. So I, there was one in there where they took some mice that uh, you know were on a, a regular ex exercise regimen. And then they transferred the bacteria out of their gut into the gut guts of other mice or some, something to that effect. But I thought that was a really cool experiment because it's going to give you not a definitive answer, but a, a solid answer. You know, I mean, that's real data that you can base things on. Um, so I was, to be honest, I was pleasantly surprised by some of this research that's going on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I agree a thousand percent. I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in this space. Um, the idea of fecal transplantation, you know, is a really interesting one for me that you could, take a donator's dookie and move it into yours and get the benefits of what that donor had going on. It almost makes me wonder, I have some friends who exercise a lot, you know, cause I can't run so much. It's got a bad knee, but um, I wonder if maybe I could borrow a deuce and see if I could feel a little better <laughs> just by doing the implant, you know, or, or, you know, or, you know, even better yet, I could get on a treadmill and maybe have a new enterprise on eBay. <laughs> Not feeling well. I'll send you a little bag and a stick, and all of a sudden you'll feel feel like you've been exercising when you've been laying on the couch. There's an interesting angle there. I never by the way, that. by the way, I had to look this up a while back because when you hear fecal transplant, it's like, how exactly do they do that? So apparently, and I could be wrong, but when I looked this up, it comes in a capsule, right? They they. They take the, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm such a child still. They take the poop and I guess they freeze dry it or something and turn it into a kind of powder and then they put it in a capsule and then you take it like a pill. I think that's how it works because I can't imagine any other way <laughs> that you're going to get this into your system that um, is feasible or ethical for a doctor to, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, I, 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 I can imagine a few ways. <laughs> 
You take the seat off of said bicycle and coat it with bacteria. <laughs> Leave it in the dark. No, as I not, said, a, as I said, feasible and ethical, Kevin. That's what uh, we're going that's for. That's very true. But it would seem to me that you would have to do it from the lower end of the alimentary canal because this has to go into the colon. Oh. And, it's, and also the issue is surviving the digestive tract. Even, you know, you can take some kinds of pills that are uh, encapsulated so that they survive the acid of the stomach and maybe break down with time so that they can target the small intestine or large bowel. And that um, could be the case. I'm not exactly sure how they're doing this, but it opens uh, uh, some vivid imagery from <laughs> of the hospital of the future. <laughs> Yeah, also, like yeah. you know, you go to you go give blood, and you get like a, you know, they give you like an RC and a bag of chips when you're done. Yeah, <laughs> you wonder if they'll have the bus that comes around that says we're going to do fecal transplants. <laughs> Here's a fun size pack of Oreos. Thank you for all you do for medicine. <laughs> That's right. Imagine being on the waiting list. <laughs> like when when they bring in the little cooler. Yeah, do the emergency room. Oh door. man, we'll see with oh. blood with blood donation though. And I've done quite a bit of that in my life because it's like, hey, I got something that someone can use. Why not? You know, and the nurses are cute, all that. So, anyways, you know, that's an easy sell for a lot of people. It's like, come on down, give some blood. We got we got movies, we got snacks. It'll be a it'll be a grand old time. But <laughs> with this, you know, how do you sell this to the <laughs> to the average person? I don't think it can be done at this point. I think it works. I think it would be easy. I think it's a no-brainer. Well, the thing is, they would have to know that you've got the magic stool, right? Because you wouldn't want to be a donor. You know, I don't want the donation of some couch potato who you know, has got a lousy diet, drinking Natty Light, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, I don't want that. You know, I, I want uh, healthy people stools from, you know, beautiful exercising people. And... and yeah. Oh man. Well, see, I don't know. I, we're not going to belabor the point. I just think the people who <laughs> we need to donate are not the people who are going to volunteer. No, no, it's not going to be two girls in a beaker. Oh, be, you've got. Oh uh, man, you know got, that's the uh, second of that um, style of joke you've made on this podcast, and I'm not offended. I'm actually quite impressed that you have found two ways to tie. <laughs> Well, that would be the name of the company, right? The donation company. You know, you know, the science tie in with the beaker. I think that that's how you do it. You got to sell it. You got to have a hook. Oh, man. But okay. The bottom line is that it seems like there is this more diverse um, number of bacteria, including certain ones that show up that are um, specifically related to issues uh, of uh, associated with insulin resistance and development of atherosclerosis, uh, you see fewer levels of negatively acting ones like clostridium. Um, so it seems like there is something to this. And as time goes on, I think you're going to see more and more to do with the microbiome and the way in which it communicates as a living population inside us with the rest of us. And think about that a little bit. You have this population that's secreting different stuff that's informing the broader physiology. And I uh, think there's going to be some interesting stuff coming from this. So hang on and uh, 
you know, then uh, keep posted to science facts and fallacy. <laughs> All right. Very good. We'll leave that one there. You guys can investigate that on your own time. <laughs> and let's move on to uh, this, this next story, Kevin, what are we talking about? I don't know. Which one are we doing next? We're t- <laughs> I always forget that I have to tell you the order because it's not clear. <laughs> no, it's definitely this is the one about uh, it the first time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, Jeffrey Sachs, chair of the Lancet's COVID nineteen commission, and he thinks uh, an investigation is being blocked. And I'm curious because I know we are not not we're not on opposite ends, but I think I'm a little more sympathetic to the possibility of a lab leak than you are. So I'm curious what your take is on on his comments. Well, the thing about this particular article, and this is by Jeffrey Sachs, an interview with Jeffrey Sachs in Current Affairs, uh, with Mary Hart and John Tesh, um, that it was a interview. Uh, he is the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University and the president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And he has served as the COVID-19 commission chair in on the Lancet. So not a, you know, not, not somebody coming from wacky land, someone who, who has some credibility. And he really has uh, approached the idea of the lab leak as something that it was a hypothesis that was on the table in the beginning, back in early 2020, that suddenly disappeared. And we've talked about it a bunch on the podcast. There's some different features of the virus which suggested maybe it was engineered. Um, these proteolytic cleavage sites and stuff that don't occur in natural populations, blah, blah, blah. And also the fact that there was work being done at the Wuhan uh, Institute of Virology that was along this line. That how do we engineer viruses to potentially be more well, to understand how they function. And it, it, you're not engineering them to make them more dangerous. You're making changes or mutations in a virus to understand how it works. How does it function? Because when you understand that, you have an inroads to develop therapeutics and also understand how transmission happens. So it's really important to do these kinds of experiments. And when people say we need to ban gain-of-function experiments, you don't know you're doing a gain-of-function experiment until you do the experiment and see gained function. So you're doing experiments that are changing the sequence and asking how does it affect the different aspects of of virulence, of transmission, of uh, maybe uh, whatever, you know, time course of survival on a surface, who knows. But Sachs really uh, feels that this got swept under the carpet, that when you went to the NIH and started asking for documents, they'd give you a cover page and 250 redactions. And really what he's pushing for is much more transparency and maybe a little bit of urgency and leadership into let's look at the potential for uh, some sort of uh, laboratory-based cause for the for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that's really the gist of this interview. There were a lot of fascinating things in here. I, I actually found the article he wrote for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences much more informative. This was more like, it seems like he was he was caught off guard and he's just like, they, they're not telling us what we need to know. And also they're not telling us what we need to know. So I clicked over to that and I would highly recommend the PNAS article because it's in a peer reviewed, it's, I mean, this is like 
one of the major journals in the world, right? So this is not Prison Planet with Alex Jones. So this is what really piqued my curiosity. But that's called A Call for an Independent Inquiry into the Origins of the SARS-CoV-2 Virus. And it's from May 19, 2022. So it's pretty recent. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. But there was one thing in the interview that stuck out to me. Because he initially, Jeffrey Sachs, he appointed... Peter Daszak from the EcoHealth Alliance to the commission to investigate the origins. And then he went to him and he said, okay, you know, I need to look at your research proposals because we're trying to get some background on this. And Daszak says, uh, my lawyer says, I can't give that to you. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you are in the middle of a, of, you know, a, you've been charged with a crime or you might be charged with a crime and there's, you know, risk of some, you know, jail time or whatever, I get why you're not going to hand over information. You're not going to talk to an investigator or a police officer or whatever. Guilty or innocent. I mean, that's just common sense, right? You're not supposed to do that in that situation. But, and Sack says this in the interview, he's like, this is a commission and it's supposed to be a transparent commission. We're supposed to be investigating this. Of course, (laughs) what do you mean your lawyer says you can't give this to me? So, there's a lot of elements like that, Kevin, and there's a few other examples I want to mention, but but that first one, you know, you, there's a lot of this sort of misdirection going on. And I and I'm this is what concerns me and really challenges my trust in 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 this these scientific institutions, is that this is the behavior of people who are covering their asses. Whether they're guilty or not, we don't know, but it, it just raises my suspicion. Yeah, it's a lack of transparency that puts our red flags up, right? And it does me too. I mean, it, it, it's, it, and the same thing happens when you start probing around something that isn't an issue. Then all of a sudden people are put on defensive to make it not look like an issue and then even more make it look like an issue. And, you know, I know people who I've, uh, who I work with who've had issues with, you know, freedom of information requests or public records requests for things they published or said, who said, I will not put anything in an email other than yes, no, or call me. And that automatically destroys that transparency, right? Cause it looks like something to hide when really they just want to not be misinterpreted. And I think there's a fine line to walk there. At the same time, when you look at the article in, in PNAS, you see a lot of really important uh, questionable things that really make it very compelling. When you they lay out all the sequences of all the SARS coronaviruses or all the coronaviruses of the area, and this is the only one that has a specific feature that's a little bit odd and, you know, where the heck did it come from evolutionarily? And these are things that should give us pause and maybe, uh, you know, maybe sway me a little bit that maybe there's something here. I think that I always just default to the idea that I trust scientists to do the right thing. And uh, if they did make a mistake to come clean on it. But, you know, this happened in China and Wuhan and dynamics are a little different over there with respect to saving face or, you know, not having a national disgrace. So so it, it, it's something that is a hypothesis in my mind, but... Um, and apparently we are, I'm with Sachs. It's very difficult to get legitimate information. Let me go through a few other things that I pulled out of the PNAS article and stop me at any point, Kevin, if you want to comment on any of this, none of this is definitive proof one way or the other, but like you were just saying, you put all these things together and you go, all right, this is, you know, one of these things is not like the other, like something is just not right here. So 
um, he he points out in the in the PNS article, and he's got a co-author on on that as well. But they point out that EcoHealth Alliance was um, collecting and sequencing sequencing and archiving and analyzing and even manipulating SARS-like bat uh, coronaviruses. Right? They were th- this is what their research was. They were doing this in uh, uh, Southwest China and Southeast Asia. Um, let's see what else do we got here. We know that, like inserting a fern cleavage site, and it's that—that's the big thing, right? Because this is supposed to be the smoking gun. I don't know if that's if that's true or not, but they had a—I believe they had a grant or at least a proposal to do that sort of work before the pandemic broke out. And everybody involved here, Peter Dazak and all his his collaborators, they are esteemed experts on these viruses, and that would be, I get, according to Sachs in this article trying to insert um, a fern cleavage site, that would be a reasonable target <clears throat> if you're trying to develop vaccines and you're trying to develop drugs uh, to figure out how to counteract a virus with that sort of a feature, right? It has to be in the virus so you can figure out how to beat it. So it makes sense that they would have been doing that kind of work. And then just just finally, they were working with people in Wuhan at, at the Institute of Virology, at the CDC, they were collaborating with these people. And this is where the pandemic virus originated, as far as we know. So there's there's more we can go into. But you put all that together and you go, all right, why can't we get to the bottom of this? Why is there so much obfuscation? This looks like something we need to figure out the answers to. Yeah, it, it's I've heard uh, analogies that if we had a top secret, or not a top secret, if we had a government laboratory in Fort Polk, Louisiana, you know, uh, just for what for sake of argument, and this is where we tested uh, uh, HIV, you know, or Ebola, or let's say HIV, and where HIV research was being done, and um, all of a sudden a new strain of HIV shows up in Fort Polk, Louisiana, <laughs> and. And um, there's grants that were written to change HIV to make it more infectious. Uh, and this is the and something with the changes that were in the grant proposal start showing out in the area around Fort Polk, Louisiana. I think people would be asking serious questions about that. No, no, no. Don't be a conspiracy theorist. It was a pangolin. We all know it was a pangolin. Follow the science, Kevin. Stop being a wacko. Right. But, you know, so so if you put it in, I just, my point is, is that if you put it into a different context, you begin to see how maybe it would, it doesn't seem so plausible to be a natural event. And so these are the things that give me pause. I, I just still see that there are enough other explanations that we've seen about how the virus was present in, in the wet markets, how the virus uh, was transmitted in a very local way. Now, is that cause or is that effect, right? So these are still questions to be determined and, um, and interesting ones. But you know, I think everybody should take a look at that, at that PNAS article. It, it, it really is very revealing. It is a very strange title to try to say as a, <laughs> okay, few, just a few other things before we move on that I wanted to point out. So, and these, these are quotes. So they, they write that a broad spectrum of coronavirus research was done not only in Wuhan at the, at the Institute and at the Wuhan CDC, but also in the United States. The precise nature of the experiments that were conducted, including the full array of viruses collected from the field and the subsequent sequencing and manipulation of those viruses remains unknown. 
And then, of course, we had the NIH say, we don't, we're not funding any of that work. And then it comes out because of a FOIA that they were funding that work. And then they say, well, the research we were funding, it couldn't possibly have led to the pandemic virus because they're just so distant evolutionarily. And then Sachs' reply on this is like, well, maybe, but you're not giving us the records that would allow us to verify that. So that's all I'm going to say. I the more I read about this, the more annoying it gets. That's why I don't want to talk about it very much on the show, Kevin. It's just every time we do, it's just like there's no answer and there's enough that it just pisses me off. <laughs> right. Well, it's one of these things where we always are very critical of people who speak without evidence. And here we don't have evidence and we're trying to have some nuance. And so it's very difficult to do. But it, I think the idea here is, you know, keep an open mind and, at times, you know, we wanted to shut this thing down and say, that's well, crazy, it's preposterous. But you start with time just to understand that it could be something we need to think about. So there you go. Yeah, very good lesson in that is when a new thing breaks out, just set, step back for a little bit and let the chaos unfold and then form your opinion. Don't <laughs> don't rush right in. But that's, uh, that's all for that on this week. Uh, Kevin, natural food. Another another terrific topic <laughs> for my blood pressure. Tell us about this. Well, this is an article written by Matt Ridley um, about the natural foods sham. And effective communication on the ethics of science may be hindered by appeals to naturalness. And this goes back to the argument that we've had forever about what does natural mean when you put it on a food package. And the answer is nothing um that you know uh, as i think george carlin used to say that you know dog turds are natural lead is natural you don't need any of that stuff you know and he uh uh it, and so what does natural really mean and you see a lot of packaging and a lot of discussion around this and one of the really interesting ones that he posts about or mentions in the article is golden promise which is a type of barley that was created back in the 1960s through radiation muta uh, mutation re mutation breeding by using radiation to bombard uh, seeds from uh, barley to induce mutations to gain favorable traits. And this kind of breeding scrambles DNA. You, you cause double strand breaks, you break it all apart, it rearranges, funny stuff happens, you have no idea what happens. All you know is that the product is better. And he starts out by talking about this because Golden Promise Barley is very popular among organic growers. And it's also the basis of a malted beverage that he talks about in his article, like, you know, a, a beer type beverage that is uh, sold and is very popular as a, uh, as a uh, uh, natural or a health, I guess you'd say a health conscious based article um, or uh, item that people find very attractive because it's, because it's natural <laughs> yet it's made with this you know, freaky uh, radiation induced barley. And he's exactly right. You know, uh, these appeals to the natural word when really what was done was much less natural than even some genetic engineering techniques. You know, I bet a lot of the people who think this this barley is natural won't put their food in the microwave because that's unnatural. 
How much? How much you want to bet? I, I bet if we did a survey of fifty of these people, I think every one of them would go, "Oh yeah, well, you can't use a microwave. That's bad. That'll that kills the nutrients in your food." <laughs> um, one thing that was interesting in this, and he cites a report from the New Field Council on Bioethics, and they pointed out in this, they, they analyzed, you know, how do people use terms like naturalists and natural, and what do they mean by this? And they pointed out that people basically make up their own definitions, right? So they start talking past one another, even though they're using identical terms, they're giving them different meanings. And basically there's crosstalk. People are miscommunicating. And again, I can't assign motives to this, but I wonder if, if the marketers could be aware of this, you know, they're, they're using it to say, well, you know, who cares what it means? Cause people are going to buy it based on what they think it means. So I think that's a possibility and it's really concerning. Kevin, what are your thoughts? I think that's exactly right. You you put a term out there that has ambiguous meaning and no regulation as to what it has to mean. There's no precision in what it means, but plenty of perception. And if the people you're trying to sell to have a perception that matches what you're trying to get them to think, then you can sell that product. And there's no there's no regulation on what natural means. I mean, agrobacterium is natural. You find it, you know, infecting plants and it's a natural plant pathogen. Yet, if you use it in the laboratory to transfer a gene, it's considered not natural. Mm. So, you know, it's it's a very very foggy area here. Where we go back to the idea that you know, follow the money. People are just exploiting the term in order to make more money by selling products to a larger cu- customer base and natural sells. And, and really that's really all what it's about. It reminds me of this old episode of two and a half men when Charlie Sheen was still on the show and he's explaining that people would confront him with his bad behavior, his character on the show, you know, they're like, you drink too much. You really need to work on this. And he'd always respond. I understand exactly what you're saying. And then later in the episode, he says, what I mean when I say that is, I understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. What you think I'm saying is, thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm not going to do the second thing. I just want you to feel better about having the courage to, to criticize me. You know, I think that's exactly what's going on with all of this food marketing. You know, it's like natural. You think it means, you know, it, it just fell off a tree in nature somewhere and it's beautiful and there's music playing and it's good for you. And that's ridiculous. I'll say one thing though, Kevin, I think there is, there's a way you can use the word natural that makes sense in that you're talking about things that are good for you based on human nature. You know what I mean? So if I was to pull a book off my shelf and start reading it, that is naturally good for me because I have a functioning brain and acquiring knowledge helps me live a fulfilling, productive life. Now, in contrast, if I was to take off my headphones and start slamming my face on my desk right now, that would be very unnatural because I could give myself a concussion. Who knows? You know, I could really hurt myself. So in that sense, you can talk about things as being natural or unnatural, but nobody actually uses it in that way. And that's what I find so interesting is that there, there's arguably one way you could use this word where it makes sense, but people use it in a bunch of different ways and they just make it up. It's, it's just so funny to me the way language changes like that. I agree a thousand percent. There's ways that, you know, we, we know what we think it means. <laughs> it's like they say, it's like, uh, what, what was the famous example of, you know, pornography? I, I don't know. You know, you I know, know it when I see, see it. it. Yeah. Right. And the same is true with natural. It's, uh, 
it means different things to different people. And then, uh, unfortunately, it's being used to misguide people around the science. And that's where we have to step in and continue good science communication to talk about what does it really mean. And most of all, a product making claims that it's natural when it's being uh, used with radio uh, uh, barley that's been produced through radiation. Um, it's good to give people the full story because that's transparency. And it's also helping people understand how we genetically improve crops. Yeah, man. You know, it just occurred to me, I'm sure other people have done this, but I'd like to do an episode where we take all of these marketing terms like ultra processed and processed and natural. And maybe we can skip some of the one like GMO and all that because we've covered that. But there's a lot of these words out there that are just sort of taken for granted. And it'd be good to really dive into those. Maybe we could get a, a dietitian or something to help us out with that. That'd be cool. Okay, but that's for another day. Kevin, who are you following on Twitter? I'm following Quackery Detector, <laughs> which always has uh, good posts about uh, fake news relying uh, relative to medicine. And uh, that's at Quack Detector. Very highly recommended. So there you go. Uh, who are you following? Uh, I'm following the Mises Institute, and uh, they're a nonprofit. They just teach people about economics. It's really awesome. They've got all kinds of books, all kinds of material. It's just free on their website, you know, stuff that normally would cost you 40 or 50 bucks on Amazon or something. They just give it away because uh, they own the rights to it. So it's really good. But, like, for example, if you want to understand how inflation occurs and why it occurs, they have great material on that. And, of course, that's affecting all of us right now because the prices of everything are going up. So they're just at Mises and it's M-I-S-E-S -S on Twitter. And by the way, Quackery Detector, I think I recommended them a while back and they just re retweet crazy, crazy people and they go quack, 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 quack. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Good, good, good recommendation, Kevin. Thank you guys as always for listening. We'll be back next week. Follow us on Twitter at Kevin Fulta, at ACSH.org for my writing, and then follow at Genetic Literacy. They're just at Genetic Literacy on Twitter. They put this on for us, and we enjoy doing it. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. <laughs>